If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I look at politicians, effective politicians, the two arguably most effective politicians in Britain the last 50 years, arguably, were Thatcher and Blair. And both of them were incredibly unhistorical. I mean, in terms of their knowledge and also in terms of their approach. That was Quasi Quarteng on whether politicians pay enough attention to history. You see the, the failures, those who are unable to negotiate the political system, whose heads end up on the block because they don't have that malleability. And you know, for me, looking back in, in the Tudor period, where you essentially have this, you know, the birth of modern bureaucracy, yeah. those individuals who are able to guide themselves through it have my utmost respect. And that was Chris Skidmore talking about his political heroes from the Tudor period. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of December 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Ever since the days of Thomas More, historians have doubled up as politicians, and vice versa. And these days, it seems barely a month goes by without another work of history arriving in our office, written by either a current or former MP. Meanwhile, the past few years have seen a crop of historians make their way in Parliament. To get a feel for how these two professions interrelate, and the value of having historical expertise in government, we convened a panel of politician historians, comprising the MPs Quasi Quarteng, Tristram Hunt and Chris Skidmore, as well as Peter Hennessy, who sits in the House of Lords. Putting the questions to the four of them at Portcullis House in London was our reviews editor, Matt Elton. And please be aware that this interview was conducted a little while back, and so before some of the most recent developments in British politics. My name is Kwasi Kwarteng. I'm the Conservative Member of Parliament for Spellthorn in Surrey. Peter Hennessy, Independent Crossbench Peer, House of Lords. Uh, Tristram Hunt, Labour Member of Parliament for Stoke-on-Trent Central. And Chris Skidmore, Conservative Member of Parliament for Kingswood near Bristol. First question then, really. Uh, What came first for you? Was it history or politics in terms of your interest? Gossip, which links to both. (laughs) It links the two of them. Weapons-grade gossip is the link. Yeah, Okay. And the motivation. Gossip with footnotes. I think history, I mean, 
I mean, very few youngsters really have a passion for politics. I think a, a love of history, engagement with history comes before that. Okay. So I, I see history coming before in terms of se- sequence of interest. See, I was different. I was thinking about applying for PPE at Oxford and I was dissuaded by my school teacher who said that I'd learn more about politics if I studied the quarter of Henry VIII. He saved you, he saved you. This is the sort of young William Hague. (laughs) I I had a passion for history, first of all. I had a wonderful history teacher. And so lessons on the Battle of Bannockburn and Battle of Waterloo. But then then he also introduced me to sort of politics through history because we also uh, uh, studied uh, uh, Engels. Uh, and studied Friedrich Engels um, and his account of Victoria Manchester. So it's sort of, it's segued into the, the politics from the history. <laughs> well, I um, had an elder sister who was a school teacher, history teacher. And in 1958 for Christmas, she brought me R.J. Unstead's Learning from History, was it called? Or Learning of History? How can I forget it? It's seared into it. Got it at home. And it had a profound effect on me because I was a Catholic, I'm a Catholic. And I remember the wonderful drawing of the monastic system, the kind of ecology of monasticism in the, um, in the productive sense as well as the pietistic sense. And so it led me to want to become a monk until puberty. It had immense impact on me, but mercifully that went. But the love of history certainly predated any interest in politics. Quasi is quite right. And, it, and it's the 58 Christmas present. Looking at history, I've got it, looking at history is the thing that really set me off. Then a succession of wonderful teachers, which I suspect we all have in common. Have you ever reflected, though, on how your, as I did once, how your Catholicism might have impacted your history in terms of your study of Whitehall and your study of belief in systems and structures. Institutions. <laughs> <laughs> you, it's funny you should say that, because only the... cabinet secretary is the sort of... Right. You know, but if you, were, if you were brought up in the Catholic faith before Vatican II, as I was, wonderful and magnificent though it was, it was a command model, yes. and the institutions really mattered. It also inoculated me against Trotskyism of any kind, which is why I'm not that. leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> That's right. I mean, there's many other reasons as well sure. why I'm not leader of the Labour Party. But it certainly it was a very powerful formation. And if you've grown up in an all-embracing ism, and of course I recognise similarities with, with children of my own age group who grew up in Communist Party of Great Britain families, mm. they had a similar structure and architecture and command model, which required intense loyalty. And we would sing Faith of Our Fathers, how sweet it would be if we, like them, could die for thee, which I always had faint doubts about myself. <laughs> but the, the young communists had similar, similar heroic songs. So it gives you a, a framework. and It's something to react against, even though I'm still a practising Catholic. The old command model was uh, not consonant with the views of the Guardian, let's put it that way. Yes. Then or in retrospect. I mean, what benefits do you think being a politician has for writing history? Do you think there are benefits? I think that's a very good question. I think, this is a personal view, that being a politician helps you become a better historian, but not necessarily the other way around. So I think being in politics is more likely to help you become a better historian than necessarily being a historian is going to make you become a better politician. That's very interesting. Can I interrupt there? Well, you can interrupt all you like. (laughs) Doesn't it give you a kind of gyroscopic effect as a politician? You know that these things will pass. What is transient and what is like... People say that, but when I actually look... When I look at politicians, effective politicians, you know, the two arguably most effective politicians in Britain last 50 years, arguably, were Thatcher and Blair. And both of them were incredibly unhistorical. I mean, in terms of their knowledge... And also in terms of their approach. I mean, Margaret Thatcher had a 
a sort of um, lower sixth version of British history in many ways. And she had very passionate views, but she was not someone who ever claimed to any kind of deep historical knowledge. And I think Blair was the same. Well, and that was always the Roy Jenkins criticism of Blair, that he wasn't, you know, and and he meant it in in an admirable way, that actually you don't want... For, for an executive decision maker, you don't want necessarily want someone reflecting on all the new. You actually want a slightly, a slightly 2D sometimes. That's right. Uh, for myself, the writing and sometimes, you know, sitting in the library here, scribbling away or doing a bit of research, the constant reminder of being in this place is the geography of power, I find. That actually, you know, I'm working for Osborne now as his parliamentary private secretary, and I have to sort of gatekeep us, you know, but the number of MPs who want to see the Chancellor write scr- you know, in fancy letters, no different from whether you look in. Thomas Cromwell's state papers, cool, and the exactly. number of people exactly. who are questioning either a meeting with the king or preferment. Yeah. And Not comparing him to Cromwell, surely. That's an no, act of what? supreme interesting disloyalty. <laughs> Thomas Cromwell no, was no, quite no. effective, depending on which oh. review. <laughs> in terms of a <laughs> remarkable yeah, reformer <laughs> and a You've got Downing Street under lock and key over there, and only a certain number of people can get through and so you realise actually it's, it's all about the, the, sure. the space That's of the right. court and we still well, live in it's like cabinet ultimately the, you know sort of white hall itself yes but the ghost of white hall palace is still reflected in this the whole idea I mean the public still has this sort of trilopian view of the cabinet and the, the Duke of Omnium and the Earl of this yeah. and they're these sorts of you know yeah. chiefs who have individual um, powers but the, the extent to which cabinet responsibility has been centralised to just a key few players but having said that it. if you ignore the old collective impulse it rebounds on you George Jones of the LOC has this dreadfully vulgar metaphor of knicker elastic yeah. if you put it out towards the prime then you think it, it bounces back, back. Maybe. Yeah. and do you remember John Biffin the wonderful John Biffin wrote of Mrs T in a, in a review article in The Spectator, which she'd prepared before her fall, but came out the week of her fall, she, was, she thought she was a tigress surrounded by hamsters. And, then and the, the cabinet government means you must never neglect the hamsters because the little bleeders at a certain point sure. will all line up and sink their fangs into your thigh <laughs> and you're yeah. done for. So that's the, old, the old and the new... Yeah, I think, I th- but I th- I, anyway, um, well, I think the problem. I think, I think what Westminster gives you is, well, well, I think what working in Westminster provides is a proximity to the, the nature of power and systems of power, which, which is not there out, outside. And, and I think historians are more, I, th- I think historians are better than politi- political scientists. One of the things I've certainly learned here is just the vast gulf between academic political science yes. and politics. Um, and I think there's less of a gulf with, with historians, yeah. but, it's, but, it's, but it's, it is their poli side. I think you're absolutely right. There's a human side to it too, a sort of anthropological side, is that this place, both houses, both chambers, divide into people for whom the walls talk, who have a sense of history, mm. and ancestral voices. And you take your pick according to what makes you excited. And those who are tone deaf on it, who would like us to be in a kind of QE2 centre somewhere in the Midlands or in York. Nothing against the Midlands or York. But they they wouldn't mind at all if we shifted to somewhere modern and voted electronically and all the rest of it. But there are some of us who would be like tearing of the flesh, wouldn't (laughs) it? And I'm one of those. Yeah, yeah. Do you think politicians in general take enough notice of, of history? I don't think they do. They cherry-pick if they do much at all. Um, but, I, I, but, I, but, I mean, Tristram said earlier, in fact, in some ways, there's an argument for saying that if you are an executive and you've got to take snap decisions, you don't want to pour across all the centuries, you know, for examples and, and different uh, precedents. Yeah. You want to be able to take a snap decision. 
So I think a lot of I, I think I think a lot of our colleagues are people who aren't that. I mean, they're interested in history, but they don't refer to history to inform their, it's, their it's judgments. A, it's, it's, a, it's a data set. It's like economic data or social data. You, you Politicians use it to bolster, inform, and develop arguments and rhetoric that, that they want. And it's always been, the, you know, what is the point of the Shakespeare history plays? Yes. Are the, are, and, and the use of Shakespeare history plays in the early 1600s was always about, you know, informing the present and uh, and, and, and shaping, shaping Elizabeth debate. said, uh, I am Richard II. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly. There's two exactly. dangerous habits I see some members of parliament fall into, the two dangerous tendencies of abusing history. One is what I'd call sort of the, ch- the Churchill tendency of, of looking at intervention and thinking, can I be on the right side of the argument? Can I predict years in advance that I can somehow be vindicated and, and transform my political career in some way by maybe opposing serious actions? And I, you see that in certain individuals in the Conservative Party as well as elsewhere. And I think the second one is this drive always to be on the right side of history. So when critical votes come, mm. that you MPs think, I've got to be on the right yeah. side of history, not only for my constituents, but, you know, in 30 years' time, am I going I to be judged back. on a certain vote that I took, that then when the society moves on, you know, I'll be the anachronism. And I think th- those are the two instances where I find sometimes MPs' understanding of history can let them down because it, it, history can then be used as a tool for, for, for ill. Yeah. One must never overdo the lessons of history. I'm a Mark Twain man. History doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Oh, that's right. And also, the, you have to know how we got to where we are. It's John Buckham, 39 Steps fame, wrote in his memoir, in the cycle in which we find ourselves, we can only see a fraction of the curve. And the job of the historians, I think, is to describe that curve as travelled so far as best as he or she or we can. And that's the function, and not really to load too much expectation on it as a predictor, because sure. great perils lie there. But having said all of that, it's the wonderful Penelope Lively, the novelist, great lady, who in her own memoir talked about memory, that vapour trail without which we are undone. And if you fly without a sense of how we've got to where we are, you're flying in effect without radar as a politician. I think, I think, I think, you're, I think, I think we could overdo that. I mean, I think you're right to say that um, it helps to have a sense of the past and know where you're going. But at the same time, you know, there have been remarkably effective political operators, just as a point of fact, who weren't actually that well-versed in history. I mean, you mentioned Cromwell. You, Oliver Cromwell. Oliver, I was thinking. You know, of, he's not yeah. someone who spent that much time thinking about, you know, the history. Of no, no, but what he did, what he did have, and I think this is the what, Bible. What, what, exactly. I mean, what we lack today, and certainly in the Labour Party, is um, what goes with the history, which is. Uh, which for a long time is a sense of faith. And so in the Labour Party, yes. nonconformity and the nonconformist faith informed so much of historical understanding and informed a trajectory of history. The Labour Party was part of the good old cause. And, I've just, um, well, and, I'm, and it's sort of, it's lost within I've that. just published a book about Thatcher, which essentially mentions the paradox that she sort of adopted the nonconformist strand, if you like. And arguably she was the most effective nonconformist. Well, she was a roundhead. Prime yeah. Minister, you know, in the 20th century. Which, for a conservative... She liked Cavaliers, but she wasn't one But she wasn't one herself, distinctly not. Well, so many things we're still adjusting to. I mean, as as historians, we we do a first rough draft of history in our heads every morning, don't we? 
Well, well you do, Peter. I don't. Can't say I do. Partly because I'm aging. One is that extraordinary Scottish referendum result, the closeness of it, but also, and then followed by the collapse of Scottish Labour in the general election. I mean, there's your golden dollar reserves in terms of seats. From 41 to 1, it is breathtaking. And then Jeremy Corbyn, out of the blue, I mean, he expected to be the tethered goat, the less traditional tethered goat that the mainstream candidates would savage, turned out to be the lion of the contest. But I can't absorb it all. It's almost too much. History hasn't prepared me for anything. No, 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 exactly. exactly, exactly. (laughs) So you do definitely refer to history when you're thinking about voting on things and about things that are happening in politics today. You do consciously make links. Well, well, can we make a distinction here? Peter has the luxury of being firstly in the House of Lords, so he doesn't have a constituency, and secondly, being an independent member. No whips. We're independent. So so he's a totally different animal in parliamentary terms from the three of us who are, you know, essentially very heavily whipped. I'm, I'm less so this Less thing. so this <laughs> You're more detached. Paul's <laughs> very semi-detached. I don't, I don't know what, <laughs> think, think, think it's Napoleon. Think of the world when somebody was 21 or even younger. In the House of Lords, when we had the Health and Social Care Bill a few years ago, it tore the House of Lords apart. It was a very extraordinary bill anyway. It was very clunky, to use that word. I don't very often apply. But the average age in the Lords was 69.5, which meant that we were children of the post-war years. Of the, of the Attlee Welfare State, indeed the Churchill Welfare State, Family Allowances and all that, edu- 44 Education Act. But above all, we were the generation of social solidarity, the 48 creation of the health service, the greatest day really in many ways in our country's history, one way you slice it. Peter Carver-Cressy said, more anxiety was lifted off more shoulders in Britain that day than any time before since. So we're wedded to that. And the Health and Social Care Bill tried to marry the two great weather systems of post-war politics, that Atlean one, Nybevan one, and Mrs. T's market. And almost in successive clauses, you had a market impulse or you had the 1948 impulse. And in the House of Lords, the ancients found it very difficult to do with that, to deal with that, because it was the common bonding of how they regarded their generation. And that didn't apply in the same way in the Commons, partly no, because you're wimps, but, 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 and also you're yeah. young. But, I mean, I, I have a, a very junior job as a, as a liaison between the two houses. They're completely different. I mean, in terms of how the debate is uh, prosecuted, the arguments that are lined up, it's a very different feel. Very, and you, when you see XMPs debating in the House of Lords, mm. they com- some of them are totally tone deaf. So they barrack the opposition. It doesn't work, does and it? it? And it just, you know, people are just sort of horrified. I mean, it's almost yeah. as if someone just sort of threw up on the, on the breakfast mutter, table or something. Douglas Heard once said to me, people mutter and moo. That's how you show dissent in the house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <that's> <laughs> <a> <laughs> somebody <laughs> rants, there's a great deal of moo. <laughs> yeah. But I, don't, I, it's, I think when it comes to voting, when it comes to bills and things, it's not, as it were, the search for specific, specific historical parallels. It's actually a way of thinking and approach in which history has yeah, informed sure, your, your political views. Do you have any heroes politically from the periods you've looked at? Well, I've I've written a book, I declare an interest. I mean, I've written a book on Margaret Thatcher, who I think was a remarkable leader. I mean, I didn't follow her in every particular. And I feel that, uh, you know, she she still dominates in many ways. The responses, uh, you know, with, with parliamentary colleagues. I mean, people... You know, have a have a distinct view. I don't know what Chris's view is. Well, I think, obviously, probably my own political heroes go back several centuries before. But Over I think the the, the common strand. I think having been involved in this lifestyle for the past five years is longevity and looking at actually the, the respect I have now for some key political figures yeah. in the Tudor period I think probably William Cecil you know, he's constantly complaining about feeling ill and tired and I sort of understand actually how the, the political system can drain you but his ability to be on 
to change and be on the right side of the argument, to perform the political, the art of the political U-turn at the right time to make sure it didn't bring himself down. And when, you know, in all the periods of, of history that we study, you see the, history, the, the failures, those who are unable to negotiate the political system, whose you know, heads end up on the block because they don't have that malleability. And you know, for me, looking back in, in the Tudor period, where you essentially have this, you know, the birth of modern state, birth of modern bureaucracy, yeah. um, those individuals who are able to guide themselves through it have my utmost respect. Yeah. Yeah. But this reminds me of the Tony Benn line. I mean, in terms of, you know, he said there are two types of politician, you know, the, the weather vane and the signpost. And William Cecil, I mean, I'm not a Tudor specialist, but he seems very much a, a man who could, was very malleable. I mean, he said he was more like the willow than the oak. That was the, that the Marcus of Winchester. That, that was that, did he Yeah, yeah, yeah. William Paulet. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, yeah. Right, more, I, more like the oak than the willow. Yeah. I knew yeah. I shouldn't have gone into that. My one hero is Clement Attlee, for all sorts of reasons. I, I think uh, because he was diminuendo in every way. As Douglas Jay, who worked for him at Number 10 just after the war, said to me once, Clem would never use one syllable where none would do. <laughs> and I was, Very for the good. students the other day, I was, well, was fantasising, which of course we're not allowed to do as historians, counterfactual, if there'd been leadership debates in the 1950 general election. And it would have been Churchill and Attlee. And the moderator would have gone to Mr Churchill first as leader of the opposition. And the first question would have produced a 20-minute soliloquy, which would have been uninterruptible. Yeah. If the terrors of the Cold War oh, and be abated, science can... No, we don't have to reproduce it now, surely. <laughs> Every cottage home in the land will benefit from a lot of abundance, if only in all this. Attlee would have had his pipe in his mouth. And when Churchill finally subsided... Out it would have come. Quite. Back it would have gone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and those would have been debates worth having. And um, none of this prefabricated Blue Peter, here's a cliche I made earlier. I won't like that. For my one, I actually, outside of here, and I think it's one of the interesting things, actually, power is moving. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, this is a highly centralising government. On the other hand, there is devolution of power. And the young Joe Chamberlain in, in Birmingham, um, who was a, a proper progressive, an absolutely pioneering uh, civic leader. And I think one of the exciting things is talking to colleagues now, thinking that actually, rather like, you know, it's happened in France for the last, you know, 20, 30 years, actually, you, you go, you leave Paris, you leave London, and you go to be a mayor or civic leader of, of, uh, of your area. And so I think we're going to see more of that. But you see, you see what the, the, the ability of Chamberlain to take on private vested interests, to confront laissez-faire, mid-Victorian economics, to deliver you know, social justice. Yeah. He, was, he, he was inspiring. Not, you probably quite like the later change. No, no, I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you. I, was gonna ask you. I find that absolutely fascinating. I mean, how what, do you account for this? I mean, I'm genuinely absolutely yeah. fascinated by I, how do you account for the change into the imperial sort of I tend to drop Joe once we're into the sort of you know, the anger sort of you know, the crimson thread of kinship of the Anglo-Saxon yeah. Anglo <laughs> <people. laughs> is Very it dangerous good. that we even think in terms of political heroes because we've all got out of the Carlisle syndrome we're bound not to all of somebody us. We have, not <laughs> no, not I mean, you dropped that. I mean, maybe your yeah. students at Queen Mary or whatever, no, but no, I, no, <laughs> not no, no. I've, I've chosen the anti-hero, you see. Uh, but yeah. that is probably <laughs> what divides us politically as much as anything else. You know, the, the Tory tradition versus the sort of socialist tradition is that we probably believe in the power of individuals above all to dictate yeah. events, whereas, you know, I know sort of... We'll look at the, the we, we, general malaise of we just uh, economic our, forces. We just look to our individuals on a slightly broader spectrum than SW1. I belong to a party that's not represented in actual written terms down here, but exists very powerfully in the Lords. It's called the Whig Party. Do you think that does feed into the approach you take to writing history then? 
do you think it naturally comes in the same place? I think approach? it does. I mean, I think, I mean, both yeah. Tristram and I have written books about empire and they've had, a, you know, they were, they, were, they were successful books, um, but they had very different approaches. And, um, and I find that very stimulating. I mean, I learned things from his book. Um, I disagreed with a lot of things in his book, but, but you know, the, the, there were two different approaches. There are lots of different approaches and not, neither, I don't think ultimately one can claim, you know, total exclusive possession of the truth. And it isn't that one's definitely right or wrong, so there's no. some sense of kinship across the approach. Yes, I mean, I think, I think that in terms of the, I mean, Chris mentioned the individual. I think we tend on the, on the right, perhaps to talk of, you know, you talk about the Carlisle syndrome, but individual actors affecting outcomes in quite random ways. I think, you know, for, certainly in an intellectual point of view, the left is more um, fascinated by, you know, economic structures, social structures, um, you know, superstructures, that sort of thing. So, but I think this is an intellectual style. I don't think this is... But I think you've got to also, you, you commit to writing a book, takes three, four, five years, right. unless you believe in your subject and you're willing to put that effort in then, you know, I don't doubt for a moment that, you know, looking at economic history review and re- looking at agrarian history is, is valuable, but I couldn't commit myself to, to focusing on a book because, you know, that's not where my heart lies. And in a way, that sort of political attitude... But I think, I think, that, is, I think that is the risk of this place uh, as historians, that you are more and more drawn to... Uh, it is the individual conversation you have that produces the result. Now, I think, I think what you do learn here is that... Um, you know, in quite a sort of Lewis Namier way, that individual relationships matter enormously in, in political outcomes. But you know, men make their own history, but not necessarily of their own choosing. And I think there are the the, the, the danger for us, as it were, as historians in Westminster, is those those broader, you know, seeing the sort of curve, those broader intellectual um, and economic and social context are sometimes lost mm-hmm. if we're we're moving between constituency and Westminster and the sort of sure. the political world. And and you and you need yeah. the space, you need the detachment for that. But yeah. different types. I mean I mean Chris is absolutely right and Tristram's right. I mean, you know, Chris has written the books about uh, you know very powerful people, kings, you know, courts. Um and, and that that's you know, I could see the, the parallels between modern politics. You know, you're not going to write a social history of the Black Death. Um you know, you're, you're, and, and, and actually, I'm drawn to the kind of history that you are as well. I mean, I'm more modern, but, but, but I like empire. And the book I wrote about empire was almost exclusively focused on people I thought were, were, were actually, you know, in charge, as it were, political um, government people who were, who were, you know, laying down the law. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated very often, though, by the back of the house people, not the front of the house, which is why it's an unusual pursuit, really, writing about Whitehall. They, these were very big figures, indeed, they're slightly diminished now by for various sure. reasons. Um, the, the big permanent secretaries who yeah. fought in the war, because they're nearly all men, and had come back and been recruited after the war to the civil service, they're very big figures. And they, uh, Ian Bancroft, who was head of the civil service, said we were the generation for whom anything was, everything was possible. And they hadn't really been written up. Anthony that's Sampson right. had got them in his Anatomies of Britain, and that inspired yeah. me to have a look at them and that's report right. them on a daily basis when I was a journalist, if I could, in the Times, as the Whitehall correspondent, though I wasn't called that. And these back-of-house people were fascinating to me because, of course, they, sure. they have their own politics, small yeah. p. Mm. They have their own ways of doing turf sure. battles. And they are absolutely crucial to the outcomes. And yet they were hardly written about. I think they that's a fair. And also the other, it's it tilted later once the Cold War was over, which is the greatest single boon of our shared lifetime that it ended the way it did. 
it was what I call catch-up history, and my students would do this with me. The, the material that could only be declassified when the Cold War was over, that was older than 30 years, civil defence, nuclear, transition to war procedures and all of that, as well as the men and women of the secret state who'd done great things for King George VI and the Queen in the Cold War, but had not got their place sure, in the historical sun. So once the National Archives had got their history, their frozen history, we got down there to warm it up and talk to them retrospectively. And so to bring them into the historical sun, That'd which I think is a, great, yeah. is a great thing to do when it's safe to do so. And I've just finished with one of my former research students, James Jinks, a history of the submarine services. Oh, yes, the war. Yes. And they were the most silent of all the services. Sure. And so we had to bring them up, as it were, from the well, side deep. That's a very good metaphor. It actually works. They, thank you very much. <laughs> but of course, they're wonderful to be with because they're extraordinary anthropological institutions, those subjects, sure. all on top of each other. They, they, they say to you, we all come back or none of us come back. Sure. And they engage in the sort of human conduct of permanent wind-up and yet highly specialised all the time. And so you see them when you dive with them. It's quite stunning. My wife, of course, refuses to believe this is research. She thinks it's a protracted journey. And I'm one of those few people who can say, I cannot say that my wife doesn't understand. Oh, that's right. <laughs> She's got it exactly right. Um, are there any public misconceptions about the relationship between history and politics? And are there any pitfalls? Well, the one thing I would say is that I think it's very recent, but, but we're moving from a system where MPs were essentially private people to one in which people think, not many people, but some people think of MPs as essentially civil servants. So you get occasionally people saying, oh, but, you know, why are you writing books? The fact is that you know, MPs have been writing books since Thomas More and probably before that, you know, for hundreds of years. So in a way, I think that's the normality. But certainly when we all came in in 2010, people were saying, oh, this new phenomenon, the historian MP. Well, do you know about Macaulay or Gibbon or Thomas More or uh, Winston Churchill? I mean, the list is endless. Um, and obviously you have to juggle time as well, which, it, which does make things more difficult. But yeah, I, mean, well, I mean, one of the things I've found, though, is as a historian, it's been very, I find it very informative and useful for my uh, work in, in the constituency. Yes. And uh, Stoke-on-Trent is a place with a remarkable history in the Industrial Revolution and Design Revolution. And, it, and it's a place that has been hammered in the last 30 years by world historic changes and having having a uh, having a sense of 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 time and understanding of time and one's position within time is useful but also having a strong as it were having in short, the credentials as a historian to say, well, look, look at the architecture we've got here. Look at the heritage we've got here. Look at the industry we've, we've got here. This is, this, is, this is important. Let's make more of it. And how do we manage it? That, that's actually, I think, uh, as, as history becomes heritage and heritage becomes an asset, actually doing your job as, a, uh, as an MP um, in, in the community like Stoke-on-Trent, being a historian is actually quite, quite, a, quite a valuable part of that. I'd like to say in the past... 10, 15 years, and almost to return to the first question about sort of upbringing. When I studied history at school and the beginning of university, it was still very much in sort of ivory, ivory tower trade. The books that existed were predominantly textbooks that, you know, you'd study. Now there's been this explosion in public history. I mean, not thank, you know, thanks for part of things like the BBC History Magazine, where you've seen this huge appetite. Suddenly we're, we're almost and riding... history literary festivals. Yeah, I mean, and it's we're riding this crest of a wave that is ongoing. But I think uh, as well as being members of parliament, that then creates this unusual interest in us as also being sure. historians. Um, but I think it gives us a, a, a role to be able to, you know, not only talk about how our own histories that we write 
fit into a, a general pattern. But I mean, as a constituency MP, you can engage. The best event I ever did was a, an empire, discussion about empire in, in the Staines Library, which is quite a small place. Lots of books there, but, you know, and well looked after. But it was it, the range of people. I mean, there must have been about 80 people. Um, and they were all engaging with this subject because mm. either their grandfathers had been in the empire as colonial officers and district uh, commissioners, or they came from you know parts of the empire like India or Kashmir in one case. You know, there was a huge engagement with this subject, and there's no way that me, as a party political person, would have been able no, to engage that audience, that audience yeah, quite, yeah. as a conservative MP. If I had said it was a conservative MP, says you know talks politics. I'd have probably been lucky to get a third of the audience. Mm. The, one thing, the one thing that struck me since coming in five years ago to the House of Lords is just how great the gap is in terms of public understanding of the way Parliament works, the human gap. That many people have a parody view of parliamentarians, particularly MPs. Um, it's, it's garnered from watching questions, Prime Minister's questions and all the rest of it, and also the expenses scandal and all the rest of it. They have a very unfortunate, but also it's of, of them, as a group, but it's also a parody view. And they don't realise that if you prick MPs, they bleed like anybody else. And that the humanity of it, that most people in both houses of parliament are very highly motivated with a very strong public service charge. It plays out in different ways, but they're by and large hugely uh, decent people. And the MPs work their socks off all the time. The constituency load never gets any easier. Yeah, it's how these boys manage to do any scholarship at all. And so it's the parody view that worries me. Plus what Hazlitt wrote, uh, described it, was his title, wasn't it, for that amazing essay in 1829, The Pleasures of Hating. There's a lot of the pleasure of hating out there in the country. The country's looking for things to fall out over rather than to fall in about. And often the number one targets are the people here. Probably, and yeah. I find that a great, great pity because it's downright inaccurate and it doesn't help, actually, on wet Mondays in February when you've got to get up and do the slog of the constituency and do all the duties down mm. here that you're so routinely vilified. That was Quasi Quarteng, Peter Hennessy, Tristram Hunt and Chris Skidmore in discussion with Matt Elton. You can read a written version of this interview in our Christmas edition, which is currently on sale. Also in this issue... We have articles on the charge of the Light Brigade, Henry VIII's Six Wives, Black Power, the attack on Pearl Harbour, and the historical antecedents of Donald Trump. You can get hold of our Christmas issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Now, just before we go, I'd like to tell you about our next BBC History magazine events, which are taking place early next year at Bristol's Emshed Museum. On Saturday the 25th of February, we're holding a Victorian's Day, and on Sunday the 26th, a World War II Day. Both events include five talks from expert speakers, as well as a buffet lunch. You can find out more details and purchase tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. And there are discounts available for both print and digital subscribers. Okay, well, that's about it for this week, but please do listen in next time for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.